Okay, well, we are, if you're a visitor here, we are looking at uh, Peter's first letter. We're working, we haven't just picked this passage, just saying that. Uh, we're looking at Peter's first letter. It was written to Christians who are facing increasing social pressure for their faith. And in response to that pressure, Peter has been urging them, arguing with them, to live lives that aren't just different, they don't just stand out morally, but they have a beauty about them. To live lives that instead of repelling their critics, instead of repelling people who would criticize Christianity, they live, we live such lives that attract people to the gospel. Look back at chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, meaning they will speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But from that general attitude, Peter has begun to address specific areas where Christians then or now, Christians then were facing hostility from the governing authorities. If you're a slave from the head of the household, and today, in this passage, within marriages where a wife had become a Christian, but the husband hadn't. And in his advice, if you look, uh, one phrase stands out, doesn't it? And I bet you noticed it, okay? Verse one, be subject to, submit to. And it stands out because it presses all the wrong buttons in our culture. Because our culture emphasizes individualism. It emphasizes autonomy. It emphasizes not being subject to anything that I don't want to be subject to. And if you were born any time after the Second World War, which I think is most of us here, okay, whether you realize it or not, that culture has shaped you. You may, you may not realize that, but all of us in this room are shaped. We just think it's normal that we live this independent, individualistic life. So when Peter says in verses 13 and 14, be subject to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors. And in verse 18, when he says, servants be subject to your masters, and now in verse one, wives be subject to your own husbands, because we've been shaped by this culture, we feel resistance rising up inside us. But it rises even more when you realize he's not just saying submit to govern governments that you would vote for or governments who implement policies that you happen to agree with or to masters who are good or to husbands who are godly Christian men. He's saying submit to emperors like Nero, to governors like Pilate, to masters who are unjust and to husbands who are not Christians. Now, what are you supposed to do with that? Okay, what, what, what are we supposed to do with that? Okay, well, that great theologian, Humpty Dumpty, okay, he said, he said, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean. And so we can try and make the words be subject to mean something other than be subject to. 
Okay, the problem with that, of course, is that if you make a word mean whatever you want it to mean, soon words have no meaning at all. Okay, so what does this phrase, it's a single word in Greek, what does this phrase be subject to mean? Well, I think the best way to determine that is to look at how the rest of the New Testament uses it. And this word is used for Jesus' obedience to his earthly parents and of demons obeying the commands of the disciples. It is used of how the human mind refuses to submit, subject itself to God's law, but how as Christians, while we resist the devil, we don't, sub- we don't resist God, we submit to him. It's used for how one day we will see everything made subject to Christ, even as Jesus himself, as God the Son, is subject to God the Father. And it's because of that, because of amongst all of the nuances of its meaning, it's because this word carries this sense of submitting, of subjection, of obeying, that feminists, feminist theologians, describe what Peter writes here as a text of terror. Wife, you have got to obey me. But are they right? Can a husband take what Peter writes here and use it like that? Or even if they can't, even if that isn't what Peter means, is there terror in submission? Well, we're going to see what Peter says to husbands in two weeks' time, because there's always a danger of doing this in two parts, okay? So wait for two weeks' time when we look to see what, look at what Peter says to husbands. But for today, I want you to see that instead of terror... What Peter writes here is about beauty. And it's about a beauty that deep down we are all hungry for. Okay, first point then, wordless witness. Okay, wordless witness. Now one of the things that is striking about this part of Peter's letter is who he addresses. Who he addresses and who he doesn't address. Okay, he addresses them and us as citizens relating to authorities but he doesn't address the authorities. He speaks to slaves, but not to masters. Wives get six verses, husbands get just one. Why that discrepancy? Because Peter is concentrating on those who are especially vulnerable as Christians in a pagan culture. He's addressing those who lack power or social influence including wives. You see, in their culture, a wife was expected to worship the same gods as her husband. Plutarch, the Greek philosopher, wrote, a wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. To which all the wives in the room go, what? But he's a man, he doesn't have any friends. And, he says, the gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships. Why insist on that? Why say a wife should only worship the gods of her husband? 
because the families we saw last week was the building block of society. Destabilize that by introducing division into the family or by invoking the displeasure of the gods upon the family and you destabilize the whole of society. Okay, so imagine a wife who becomes a Christian and uh, she can no longer, in any good conscience, she can no longer worship her husband's gods. What will her husband think when, as he would, as head of the household, he gathers the household, the family, around the family shrine to pay homage to their gods? And his wife says, darling, I'm sorry, but I can't do that. And what will their neighbors think when they hear that that's how the wife is behaving? Because they will hear, won't they? Because it's not just different gods that she is worshiping. She is now making different friends because now she's become a Christian. So she has started meeting with other Christians in their homes to worship Christ. She's mixing with people who in all likelihood were no friends of her husband, who were probably of a lower social class than her husband with slaves, people who her husband would have no desire to have as his friends. And their neighbors would see that. And they would be drawing conclusions about his ability to lead his household and the threat that posed to the rest of society. So as well as annoying her husband, this would bring shame on him in an honor-shame culture. So how might he respond? What might his response be like? Probably criticism. Probably anger. Hostility. And how should his wife respond to that hostility? Should she back down? Worship his gods? Stop going to church? Or should she go on the attack? Well, that is exactly what Peter is addressing here. Verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Likewise. Not, by that, he doesn't mean, wife, your relationship with your husband is just like a, the relationship of a slave to his master or a citizen to the authorities. But just as Christians will seek to submit to and honor godless government or unjust masters, so a Christian wife will seek to honor and submit to her husband. Okay, not men in general. Okay, to her own husband, Peter says. Even if, verse 1, he does not obey the word, even if he's not yet a Christian. And in particular, Peter's saying, if the time comes when talking to him about some subject becomes too touchy and the discussion always heads south, like you're talking to him about his need for Christ or the joy and the peace or the identity or satisfaction he could find in Christ, or when you're trying to address some moral issue with him and he tells you to stop bringing it up, you abide by that. You submit to his wishes. But if you do, Peter's saying it doesn't mean that you stop communicating because, verse 1 and 2, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Okay, so on the one hand, 
Peter is upholding the cultural norm. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Which is why the feminists will go, exactly. He's just caving into the culture. He's just caving into patriarchy. Okay, but they're wrong, aren't they? Because on the other hand, he totally subverts the culture. Firstly, as we saw last week, this was a time when all instruction on how people should behave in a household was passed through the husband as the head of the household. But here, is Peter addressing this to the husbands? He's speaking to the wives directly as free moral agents in their own right. Secondly, he doesn't tell them to go back to worshipping their husband's gods and stop worshipping Christ, which is exactly what their culture would have told them they have to do. He's telling them the opposite. He's telling them to embrace the suffering and the social shame that comes with being a Christian. But thirdly, Peter subverts the culture because of why he tells them to submit. Okay, imagine that Sue and I okay, were a first century Greek couple. And um, I've got beautiful olive skin, <laughs> wavy dark hair, an Adonis body. Okay, why would that culture have told Sue to submit to me? Because, like all women, she is a victim of her emotions and she needs controlling by her husband because she's morally and intellectually inferior to me and I am wiser than her, at which my daughters, if they were present, would all roll their eyes. Okay, is that why Peter tells wives to submit to husbands? It's the opposite, isn't it? You see, Peter knows that these wives understand what is right and true better than their husbands, which is why their husbands need to be won over, not the other way round. And Peter says that that can happen, verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And that word respectful, again, as we've seen before, is the word fear. And throughout this section, Peter consistently says it is God with fear, not man. So a Christian wife does not submit to her husband because she's afraid of him or because she's afraid of how others will see her or him. And she doesn't submit to him to bolster his reputation or his ego. She is to submit to him out of a love-filled awe for God. As Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, so a wife doesn't do this because she is a second-class citizen, which is what their culture would have told her that she was. She does it as a freely chosen act because she knows as Peter has been telling us, that God loves her and he has called her because he's chosen her and he has set her apart as his own and she fears God, not her husband. 
which also means that a wife's submission to her husband is not ultimate. If her husband says, don't worship Christ, or tells her to do something that is immoral, she doesn't say, yes, whatever you say, dear. She continues to worship Christ and to do what is right, even if her husband doesn't like it. And she's going to embrace that. So this is not Peter telling husbands, make your wives submit. And it is not Peter defending abuse. Okay, he never excuses the husbands for their behavior, and he never blames the wives. He doesn't even spell out in detail what this submission is going to look like. Probably, I think, because it's going to look different in different marriages. Instead, he trusts these women who he is speaking to as equals to work this out for themselves. But as they do, their disposition is going to be to honor and to love and to serve their husbands, who frankly may not be worthy of it. And so as Karen Jobes, who is professor of New Testament at Wheaton writes, it's ironic that words that first century wives would have read as affirming and empowering are criticized as enslaving and oppressive. That's not how these women would have read it. The opposite. You see, Peter is saying that God can use a wife to change the heart of her husband. That when her words run out of power, her life doesn't. Which means, frankly, that this has something to say to all of us. Because when you have got a relationship, maybe you're in one now, maybe, maybe you've got a relationship where things have got to the stage where it is impossible to speak about some issue whether that is the faith or some other issue, maybe some moral issue, or where there is a deep disagreement between you. And Peter is saying, you may not be able to speak, but you can still speak. But it's the quality of your life that does the talking. Second point then, true beauty. Wordless witness, true beauty. Now, have you ever seen something and almost instantaneously gone, ugh, that is revolting, or that is grotesque, or frankly, that's just ugly, and you've wanted to look the other way? Ever experienced that sort of visceral reaction? Or have you ever stood in front of a piece of art, or some view, or maybe even in front of someone, and you go, wow, that is beautiful? If ever you have been repelled or drawn towards, you are acknowledging that there is such a thing as beauty. And if some things are more beautiful than others, then something must be the most beautiful thing of all. And if beauty has the power to attract us and to hold our gaze and to take our breath away and to draw us in, then that must be because deep down we want beauty. And we're searching for that which is most beautiful, the beauty that can never be surpassed. And the Bible tells us, yeah, we are. And that beauty is God, 
In Psalm 27, which we did as our responsive reading this morning, David says that his one prayer, the prayer that sums up all of his other prayers, all of his other longings, all of his other desires, is that he might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Because it's only his beauty that can fully satisfy our hunger for beauty. It's why Augustine wrote of God, I have learned to love you late, beauty at once so ancient and so new. If you know anything about Augustine, he has looked in multiple other places for beauty to try and satisfy his inner longings. And he says, I finally found it in you because you're the beauty who never grows old, that my eyes will never grow tired of looking upon. And if that's true, and it is, all other beauties are pointing us higher. It's why one biographer of Michelangelo, you know, Michelangelo who sculpted the sculpture of David, said to be one of the world's most beautiful pieces of art, he said, human beauty, as represented in his Michelangelo's work, is a reflection of divine beauty. And its contemplation leads the soul inexorably towards God. So look at verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external. What does it mean to adorn something? It means to make it look beautiful, doesn't it? To use beauty to attract people to it, to have people notice it. And the way that women might do that, Peter says, verse 3, is by the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewellery or the clothing you wear to go for external beauty, to have people notice you or compliment you, to feel good about yourself or to have them feel good about you, to go for external beauty. And Peter says, don't do that. Now, we'll expand on that a bit in a minute. okay? Because you could hear that and dismiss Peter as some guy saying what every other guy in that culture was saying and say, yeah, it's just, just cultural, just cultural, it's what the Greek guys were saying, this doesn't apply to us to today, different culture, different rules. Or you could say that it does apply today, but over-apply it, and I'll tell you how, because you might say, Peter's clear, women should not be spending uh, money at the hairdressers or wearing jewellery or nice-looking clothes. Except Peter doesn't say, don't let your beauty be about the expensive clothes you wear, does he? He says, don't let it be about the clothes you wear. Okay, so if, you, if, you, if your danger is you, you over-apply this, what you are saying is, you know, we're going to, ladies need to just, no hairstyles, just wear your hair long, no jewellery. Okay, it's not just expensive clothes then that you have to ban, but the wearing of any clothes. But if you did that, then people really would think we're weird as Christians, okay? Westlake, the place where women wear no clothes. Okay, so if that is not what Peter is saying, what is he saying? If he's not saying, you know, don't do that at ever at all, what is he saying? He is saying, don't make external beauty and the compliments of others or the look of a man, or even how good you might feel about yourself based on your looks. Don't let that be your primary focus. Instead, make your priority 
the pursuit of a different kind of beauty. Verse four, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You see, a woman facing the criticism of her husband in this situation might be tempted to criticize back or to cave in. But she might also be tempted to try and keep her husband sweet or just make herself feel good by working on her physical attractiveness. And Peter's saying, don't make that your go-to. Instead, look to the hidden person of the heart because what is hidden doesn't stay hidden. Our characters inevitably show themselves, especially when someone is saying unkind or untrue things about us. When you are under that kind of pressure, your character inevitably shows itself. You see, just like you can have a guy who looks really hot, who is totally ripped, who has a great head of hair and just the right amount of stubble, but who on the inside is a total jerk. So external beauty in a woman can be deceiving, Peter says, and you don't want that. Least of all, when you are trying to make the truth look beautiful. Instead, Peter's saying, you want the reality of the underneath that shows itself when it is under pressure. You want that to be a beauty that is imperishable, a beauty that doesn't need Botox or fillers, a beauty of character that points a husband to the far greater beauty of Christ. As Blaise Pascal wrote, every man is almost, and by that he means humanity, every man is almost always led to believe, not through proof, but through that which is attractive, that draws you into the beauty of Christ. And Peter would say, yep, and that might just be the attractiveness of the inner beauty of a wife. Verse four, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle, because Jesus was gentle and humble of heart, and all of us are called to walk in his steps and quiet because when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And that kind of spirit, Peter says, in God's sight is very precious. Because as God said to Samuel, Samuel who is in danger of paying too much attention to external looks in men, when he's trying to pick a king, God says to him, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And precious because when God looks, and when he sees gentleness combined with quietness in the face of hostility, what does he see? He sees the character of his son. Okay, but if Peter is addressing this to women who are already married, is there anything here for those of you who aren't? You're young women, you're not not married, but maybe you want to be one day. Is he ruling out dressing in a way that might attract the attention of a guy? I'd say a couple of things. Firstly, as Peter says here, 
Make your primary attention your character. Okay, for all of us, male or female, that should be the case. Our primary attention should be our character. But secondly, while you should not dress to seduce, and we could argue about what that means, it's okay to make yourself look beautiful if your aim is to have your outside point to your inside as that points to Christ. Listen to what Jay Budzisuski, professor of philosophy at the University of Texas, writes in his book on the meaning of sex. It's a great book. He writes, and forgive the, I think, beautiful language. The biggest disadvantage of the plain girl with character isn't that, which means the girl who's got great Christian character but may not naturally be a stunner. The biggest disadvantage of the plain girl with character isn't that no young man could ever think her beautiful, but that she finds it difficult to get young men to notice her long enough to see just how beautiful she is. For this reason, I don't agree with those strict people who would deny a woman a pretty dress or a touch of powder on the grounds that adornment is an artifice. Artifice need not be dishonest. We don't call it deceitful for a baker to adorn a pastry with frosting or for a speaker to adorn lectures with jests, so long as the pastry and the lecture are really good. Neither should we call it deceptive for a woman to hang a modest pearl from the ear. If the ornament helps to hold a young man's attention long enough for him to notice her ornaments of character, it has served truth very well. So pursue character and let your outer beauty serve that inner truth. Okay, but it also says something to you young guys, young guys who aren't married, because maybe you're looking at or you're looking to the wrong thing. And I would say, I think Peter would say, stop waiting for the externally beautiful woman of your dreams to come along. Because she doesn't exist. And instead, go for character. Because there really is a beauty that is internal. Go for that. And what might not look stunning by the world standards in your eyes today, believe me, will look more beautiful every day. Okay, but why do any of that? Why make character your aim? And why, if you're a married woman, choose voluntary submission to your husband over the individualism of our culture? Last point then, fearless fear. Just briefly, fearless fear. Verse five. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And Peter is referring to Genesis 18, verse 12, where God has just promised Abraham that he and Sarah, despite their old age, are going to have a child. And Genesis 18, 12, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Why pick that? as an example of Sarah submitting to Abraham. I mean, this is hardly Sarah's finest moment, is it? Plus, she is just talking to herself. It's, an, it's a you know, castaway comment. But that's exactly the point. You see, to treat her husband with honor and respect, to call him Lord, 
has become second nature to her. So she does it even when she thinks no one else is listening. She does it even when she is not at her best. And that despite the fact that over the long years of their relationship, Abraham has given her ample reason not to respect him. So how does she do it? Because through the ups and downs of life and through the ups and downs of their relationship, Peter says she has been putting her hope in God. Her hopes in him, not in her husband and not even in herself. And Peter says, verse 6, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You see, to be a child of Sarah is to be a child of the promise. The promise that through Abraham and Sarah, an offspring would come through whom the whole world would be blessed. And that offspring was Christ who Hebrews calls the radiance of the glory of God. Who's the ultimate beauty to which all other beauties point to? It is Christ. He's the ultimate beauty. And yet, that ultimate beauty became subject. He submitted. And at his trial and at the cross, he submitted himself to men like these husbands who refused to obey the word. Why? Why did he do that? To win us, like these women are wanting to win their husbands. And when you understand his submission, when you get that he made himself subject, when you understand his love for you, it fills your heart with awe and wonder, and you will put your hope in him. And then, in Peter's words, you will do good and not fear anything that is frightening. Do you think that's an ironic statement? It's almost an oxymoron, isn't it? How can you not be frightened of that which is frightening? How can you not be afraid of that which makes you afraid? Like commitment that restricts your choices or honouring another person when that other person doesn't deserve it when you know that Christ did it for you. And if he's for you, you can love and honor and do good, even to those who are hostile to you. And you can win them by pointing them to the beauty that we're all hungry for. Let's pray.